Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. When Brutus was about to take his army across from Asia, it was very late at night. His tent was dimly lit, and all the camp was wrapped in silence. And then, as he was meditating and reflecting, he thought he heard someone coming into the tent. He turned his eyes towards the entrance, and he beheld a strange and dreadful apparition, a monstrous and fearful shape standing silently by his side. He plucked up courage to question it. Who art thou, said he, of gods or men, and what is thine errand with me? And then the phantom answered, I am thy evil genius, Brutus, and thou shalt see me at Philippi. And Brutus, undisturbed, said, I shall see thee. So that was Dan Brown, uh, his account of the (laughs) life of Marcus Junius Brutus, assassin of Julius Caesar. Tom, that's a tremendous scene, isn't it? That's uh, foreshadowing Brutus's eventual defeat. Uh, do you think that actually happened? Well, re- rewritten and, dare I say, improved by Shakespeare, who makes it the ghost of Caesar himself. He does make it the ghost of Caesar, doesn't he? Yes, so the phantom is just a mysterious phantom, isn't it? Uh, it's his genius. Right. So it's the kind of the idea that there is a supernatural yeah. dimension to his character um and reflective of the kind of the um the lurid and dramatic shadows that all the figures in this great drama cast um because they are operating on the the greatest stage of all they are. well this is one of the great this is one of the great tales in all history as we were saying last time so last time for those of you i was about to say for those of you who missed it why would you have missed it tom took us brilliantly through the conspiracy to assassinate julius caesar uh, the reasons that Caesar was seen as a threat to the Republic, the motives of the conspirators, and so on and so forth. And Tom, you ended on this fantastic scene. Caesar is is lying there, his his toga over his face, pool of blood beneath the statue of Pompey, and then he's bundled into a litter by three slave boys and carried away with his, I can't remember, his, his arm or his leg dangling out of the litter. And um, the liberators, you said last time, they haven't really thought through what they're going to do next. What do they do next? Well, so so we've cast Brutus in these deep and supernatural shadows, but there's actually something faintly kind of pathetic about his behaviour in the wake of the assassination because he keeps trying to give a speech and it keeps he keeps being unable to do so. 
So uh, his his aim when the murder has happened is that he's going to hold the floor and give a speech. But there's all this panic and he kind of gets swept out. Yeah. Um, and then he, he goes out into the forum and he wants to give a speech to the great mass of the Roman people. And he does give a speech, but there's nobody there because everyone's run in panic. This mood of terror grips grips the city. People start boarding up shops. Um, Antony, you know, who is consul yeah. with Caesar, is terrified that he's next. And so he disguises himself as a slave and runs off to his house and hunkers down there. And a very eerie sound can be heard over the streets of Rome, which is the mourning of the Jews of Rome. Caesar had always been their, their great patron. And so they're, they're kind of mourning him. And the liberators basically don't know what to do. So so they retreat to the capital, which is um, one of the hills that kind of frames the forum, the great kind of central space in Rome. And um, and they hunker down there and they really mess it up because what they should have done is reconvene the Senate, declared Caesar a tyrant. Yeah. Um, you know, seize control of the functioning of the Republic. But instead, they barricaded themselves up in the capital and they leave it to Antony to take the initiative. So when he realizes that the assassins are not doing what he had expected to do, you know, he gets off his disguise as a slave, dresses himself up as a consul again, um, and he convenes a meeting of the Senate himself. And in the meantime, there's been rioting in the streets of Rome, looting yeah. and burning and whatnot. And is that because the crowd are angry that Caesar, their great pal, is dead? Or is it because they're merely seizing the opportunity to have a bit of a Barney, as it were? I think there's a feeling that no one is in control in Rome. Uh, and so, of course, people will always take advantage of that. But most people are just hunkering down and waiting to see what's going to happen. Right. And what happens is that on the 17th of March, so two days after the murder, Antony convenes a meeting of the Senate in a temple that is very close to his house. So in his shadow. Yeah. And also uh, Dolabella, who I mentioned in the first part, who is Cicero's son-in-law, a, a Caesarean, very, very thuggish, greedy, unpleasant figure not popular, can be very charming when he wants to be, but, right. but is, is really a, a very menacing presence. And so his place by the side of Antony is, you know, I mean, it's not encouraging for people who imagine that, that the liberty of the Republic is going to be restored. Cicero is at this meeting and he proposes an amnesty, which is accepted. So the assassins, the liberators, whatever you want to call them, that they will not be, you know, they will not be prosecuted for Caesar's death. Um, they also, it's passed that the dictatorship will be abolished forever. So that's the end of that institution. Right. And in the best tradition of the Republic, they start allocating provinces to various figures. And provinces mean that you can go out and, and throw your weight around and make money by kind of, you know, looting them or whatever. Bullying the locals. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, various figures pile in. So Decimus Brutus, who we mentioned in the first part, had escorted Caesar to the Senate House, loyal friend of his, perhaps even son, but yeah. who was one of the conspirators. He is appointed consul in 42. So he will get the consulship in, you know, in two years time. But he's in the meanwhile, he is given Cisalpine Gaul. And Cisalpine Gaul means it's, the, it's Gaul on the Italian side of the Alps. So the part of Gaul that borders the Rubicon. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, is incredibly sig geographically significant because it comes with with legions. Uh, so Decimus Brutus can imagine, well, you know, I, I can put the, the Republic in my shadow yeah. going there. Um, Trebonius, who it is said kept Antony from going into the Senate House, he gets Asia and Dolabella. Um, he's confirmed as consul for 44 and he's given Syria as a province. And so all of this looks like business as normal. Republic, you know, the, yeah. the grandees of the Republic dividing it up. However, 
the assassins make one fatal mistake and shrewd analysts at the time recognize it immediately as a mistake and that is that they allow caesar to have a public funeral this is a famous and catastrophic moment for them isn't it because it it's such a schoolboy error. It's a bit like having a coup and not seizing the TV station. Well, I think it's because Brutus and Cassius think that there has to be compromise, that they have to compromise with supporters of Caesar. And so symbolically, what happens is that um, Antony and Lepidus send their children as hostages to the conspirators on the Capitol, and then they have dinner. So so Cassius has dinner with Antony, Brutus has dinner with Lepidus, and it looks as though, you know, all pals together. I mean, that must have been, those must have been quite awkward Um Awkward dinner parties, you would imagine. Or maybe not. I mean, you know, these are people who know each other very well. And this is what's so extraordinary is that the conspirators seem to have assumed that everything has gone back to normal. And so they are kind of playing by the conventional rules. Yeah. But Antony, you know, he's a very, very shrewd and ambitious man, as you would expect a lieutenant of Caesar to be. And he recognizes the opportunity. And so on the 20th of March, Caesar's funeral. Uh, his, his body is displayed in the forum together with his blood-stained toga. Um, an effigy of Caesar in wax is slowly turning. So, it, you know, they got it on a kind of revolving pole. Mm. Um, and the, the, the wounds inflicted on him by the assassins is are, are marked out. Um, the names of the assassins are recited as, <laughs> as the body turns. And, you know, this is not getting the crowd in a good mood. And this is, you know, this is the famous Friends Romans countryman, lend me your ears speech in Shakespeare. And Antony reads out Caesar's will. So there's one detail in Caesar's will that he's not tremendously keen on, which is that Caesar has adopted as his main heir, uh, his sister's grandson, a a young lad called Octavius, who we will come to in due course. So Antony slightly kind of passes over that. But... One of Caesar's secondary heirs is Decimus Brutus, the very man who has just killed him. And so when Antony reads this out, there are kind of boos and catcalls. And then Antony comes to the gifts that Caesar has left to the Roman people. And these include gardens that he owns that are to be public parks. There are cash donations to everybody. And this obviously goes down tremendously well. Even in death, Caesar is the populist, Tom. Absolutely. Yes. And so all kind of, you know, Brutus's kind of guardian editorial <laughs> speeches yes. seem very pallid compared to the the red-blooded, here's loads of cash going by, you know, with a metro kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. Um, and by the end of it, basically people mobs are roaming rome looking for assassins to lynch and this is again a kind of awful episode where they they corner a guy called sinner uh, and they mistake this guy who's actually a, a poet for one of the praetors who was seen as having been sympathetic to the assassins and they rip him to pieces chop off his head and carry it around on a, on a spike so generally things are not looking good no <laughs> for the assassins and adding to the generally apocalyptic mood so again shakespeare in his play has these great lines when beggars die there are no comets seen the heavens themselves blaze forth the death of princes mount etna in sicily has erupted and the atmospheric effect of this is you know in the days and weeks that follow caesar's assassination the a cosmic doom seems written in the skies you know that the sun is blotted yeah. out um, the skies turn a kind of bruised violet. Um, and people say the sun, you know, is averting its eyes from the wrongs done to Caesar. And one thing we didn't mention, Tom, actually, is that one of the people who was in the city at the time, who we've talked about a lot last year 
and the rest is history is Cleopatra, Caesar's former mistress. And she races for the coast, doesn't she? I mean, she re- recognizes that um, it's all going to kick off very shortly in Rome and she's better off going back to Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. So she scrams off. And um, meanwhile, people are looking up in the skies. A comet blazes across the sky. People say it's Caesar's soul going up to the heavens. And so all in all, it seems as though the heavens have, have turned against the assassins. So the figure who sums up, who provides us with a window onto what is going on at this time, as he's done throughout the last decades of the Republic and the Civil War, is Cicero. Yeah, we have his letters, we have speeches that he wrote, um, philosophical meditations, and in his letters we can see his kind of sense of disappointment and frustration. And so he despairs basically of the assassins, as I said in the previous episode, that he complains that they, you know, they had the souls of men, the spirits of men, but they had the, the foresight of children. And he puzzles at the way that freedom seems to have uh, been restored, but the Republic hasn't, he complains. Yeah. And so he decides, you know, what's he going to do? He, so he contemplates going to, to Athens, where his son is at the equivalent of university and misbehaving. Um, and so he sets off for that, gets on the ship, storm blows it back in comes back and he gets letters from his friend saying, why are you running away? And so he he kind of feels ashamed. And so he comes back to Rome. And even as many of the conspirators are thinking, well, we should probably leave Rome. It's getting awkward. Mm. And, and Brutus, don't forget, is the urban writer. So he's meant not to leave Rome, but he ends up heading east. Cassius does, many of the other conspirators too. Decimus Brutus heads northwards to try and take possession of Cisalpine Gaul and the the, the legions that are up there. Cicero remains in Rome and he ends up becoming the, the chief spokesman for the, the cause of the kind of traditional constitution, the traditional way of right. doing things. And for a man who is, he's very elderly by this point. And as I said, you know, he's not a naturally brave man. This is his kind of great last swan song, his attempt to rally enthusiasts of the Republic against what he sees as the threat of tyranny that still lingers because although Caesar is dead, his lieutenant isn't. And Cicero identifies the great danger to the Republic as being Antony. Just before we go into um, Antony, Tom, first an observation, then a question. So the observation is that the behavior of the conspirators really reminds me of another group of conspirators we talked about last year, the plotters in 1991, who deposed Mikhail Gorbachev. And they wanted to get rid of Gorbachev, but they had no real, they wanted to sort of turn back the clock in this vague nostalgic way to what they saw as the glory days of the Soviet Union, but they had no concrete plan for doing it. Now, one thing that they did try to do when they had that putsch was they brought troops into the center of Moscow. And so my question is, do the conspirators have any reservoir of troops that they can call on to restore order in the city and impose, you know, martial law or or whatever, or or have they not even given thought to that? They have. Um, there is a, a legion on the island in the Tiber that is under the command of Lepidus. Yeah. Uh, and Lepidus, of course, is Caesar's master of horses, deputy. So, so he's on the that, wrong side. That is a yeah. threat to them. But there are legions that have been assigned to Decimus Brutus in his role as putative governor of Cisalpine Gaul. However, they are, you know, these are legions, these are Caesar's legions. And although Decimus Brutus had served under Caesar in Gaul, again, it's a kind of moot point whether they will serve him. Right. Everything is up in the air. Yeah. And one person who absolutely does not have any legions is Cicero. And basically the only weapon he has is his powers of oratory. And he targets Antony. Uh, and, and there's a kind of inherent paradox in that because Antony's the consul. 
So he's the figure, he, he's the legitimate magistrate of the Roman Republic. And Cicero, as the self-appointed spokesman of constitutional legitimacy, is setting out to destroy him. And he wants him named as a public enemy. And he, w- what Cicero does effectively is he turns the consul's designate for 43. So the following year, who again are two Caesarians, um, a guy called uh, Hirtius, who again served with Caesar. It's Hirtius who um, finishes writing Caesar's commentaries on his various wars. So it's Hirtius probably who writes the account of Caesar in Alexandria when he meets Cleopatra. And uh, a guy called Vibius Panza. Right. Um, so a tank of a man, Tom. A tank of a man, yes. And he succeeds in um, turning them against Antony. So it looks as though perhaps Cicero is succeeding in rallying the causes of legitimacy as he sees it against Antony, even though Antony is actually the consul. Now, all of this is, you know, these are figures who you would expect to be players in this game. Yeah. But there is a rogue element that has been introduced by this primary heir that Caesar has appointed in his will, uh, the the, the grandson of Caesar's sister, a guy called Octavius, um, who at the time is 18 years old. And he's when the news of Caesar's murder reaches him, he's with troops on the other side of the Adriatic from Italy, getting ready to go to Parthia to serve with Caesar on the Parthian campaign. Um, And he is told, you know, you are Caesar's heir. And his mother says, (laughs) don't go to Rome. Yeah, whatever you do. You know, you have a large bullseye on your back now. But Octavius is a guy who, as events will show, is unbelievably ambitious and ruthless and able and determined. Um, And he takes on the name Gaius Julius Caesar from Caesar's, you know, by the terms of Caesar's will. So he, he, he is Julius Caesar. When you get adopted, you add the word anus to your name. So right. Octavius becomes Octo- Octavianus. Right. And so he is known as Octavian. Yeah. He did not him- call himself that. Um, he called himself Julius Caesar. You know, he, he wanted to forget all about Octavius. But, but let's call him Octavian. Octavian crosses to Italy. He goes to Rome. The story is put about by his supporters that as he enters Rome, the sun is haloed by a rainbow, which is a kind of supernatural sign that, you know, the gods have blessed him. I'm sure that definitely happened, Tom. Again, stories are put about that even as a boy, you know, he, he'd had superhuman powers that he could command frogs to obey him. So very Dr. Valverde behaviour. Um, he's very effective at constructing improbable stories around himself right because he has disguised the fact that he's you know he's 18 yeah but he has pals doesn't he is he got mycenas his his great sort of his alistair campbell figure his spin doctor and agrippa is his you know his kind of gordon brown who never who never loses it right (laughs) who always stays loyal doesn't throw staplers at people so octavian arrives in rome and then he he's testing the waters because although he's 18 years old although he's kind of geeky inexperienced operating in a, in a absolute kind of pond full of sharks and in a world where as an 18 year old he has no right to run for any magistracy at all yeah i mean you know that's the whole point nevertheless um he has two absolutely kind of priceless attributes the first is is his great uncle's name so that's why he calls himself julius caesar rather than octavian um and the second is the fortune you know and money is is power and he starts spending it very, very lavishly. 
Um, and very soon he's entered into a kind of rivalry with Antony. So when Antony um, is asked to hand over Caesar's treasure so that the bequests of the people can be given out and, and Antony's obstructive, Octavian auctions off some of the estates that he's inherited from Caesar and uses the proceeds to give to the people, yeah. which obviously makes him in- incredibly popular. And he also uses his money to to start recruiting a private bodyguard. And very soon he has a bodyguard of 3,000 people. 3,000 men. Um, and he actually briefly occupies the forum with these men, this 18-year-old boy mm. surrounded by all his these thugs that he's recruited. He occupies the forum, gets beaten off and retreats, but he's still absolutely a player. And it's the measure of the fact that he's not simply willing to use violence and aggression, although he, he's clearly signaled that he is, but also that he's a kind of shrewd political player, is that he he goes to Naples where Cicero is hanging out and he, he tries basically to, to win Cicero over. And Cicero is suspicious of him, but developments towards the end of 44 persuade Cicero that perhaps there's a deal to be done with Octavian. Because basically what has happened towards the end of 44 is that as Antony's consulship draws to an end and therefore the kind of legitimacy he holds as the most senior magistrate in the state, he decides that he's going to go north and try and, and, and raise troops there. But the problem is, is that Decimus Brutus has had exactly the same plan so there's a kind of Antony with the power of his name is able to recruit legions, but Brutus has some legions as well, Decimus Brutus. And faced by Antony, he holds himself up in uh, in Mutina, this so Medina in in northern Italy. Yeah. And Antony settles down in front of him and aims to starve him out, puts him under siege, and you know this is it. The civil war has blazed into life again. And so Cicero back in Rome is thinking, well, we need troops, we need money and so he octavian's kind of been wooing him and so cicero decides well actually you know let's 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 try and win him over to the cause of of the republic of the constitution and so he stands up in the senate house and asks the senate not to condemn octavian's recruitment of a private army but to make it official and to kind of award him public honors yeah and obviously everyone in the senate is completely bewildered by this <laughs> you know, what what on earth is cicero doing but he sees Octavian as a tool, doesn't he? He absolutely does. And isn't it interesting that um, at this point, so the the liberators have, have disappeared off to the east, haven't they? Yeah. Antony is is besieging Decimus Brutus, but the Senate has turned against him. Cicero is against him. Well, Cicero is working to turn the Senate against him. He's working to get them to name Antony a public enemy, but they haven't yet done that. And do they do it? Well, we'll see. But they th- he does persuade them to legitimize this private army that octavian has recruited yeah and to enroll him in the forces of hirsches and panza who you know when 44 becomes 43 become the council consuls on the 1st of january but even as he's doing this cicero cicero is is terribly prone to making fatal witticisms um and so he says of of octavian even as he's bigging him up in the senate he says this young man should be lauded glorified and then raised to the skies in the way that Caesar had been raised to the skies, i.e. murdered. He says that publicly. He, he says it privately, I, but but it's a joke that reaches Octavian's ears and Octavian, you know, puts it away and, and accepts his role as someone who's going supposedly as a, you know, a, a kind of lieutenant to the two consuls, but he doesn't forget it. So spring 43, the beginning of the campaigning season, Hirtius and Panza advance on Mutina to try and relieve it from Antony. Um, Hirtius and Panzer, please, Gordon Carrera to know, communicate by pigeon. Right. 
because Antony's troops are in their way. At a place called Forum Galorum, um, Antony attacks Panzer, has the better of the first day's fighting. Panzer is very badly wounded. But then on the second day, he's ambushed by Hirtius um, and has to retreat. And the news of this, that Antony has been beaten in battle and has retreated northwards, when it's brought to the Senate, it's what persuades them to declare him a public enemy. So that's when they, they take that fateful step. Right. But they then get very bad news, which is that Hirtius has died in battle and Panzer shortly afterwards dies of his wounds. So suddenly there are no consuls and there's only Octavian right. <laughs> lurking in the background. Yeah. Meanwhile, Antony um, has escaped into Gaul and there he meets up with Lepidus and Lepidus has seven legions and Antony has a large number of legions as well. And the two men, the two armies kind of fraternize Decimus realizing that he's completely sunk. There's no way that he can fight Lepidus and Antony together. He scarpers, um, tries to make his way through North of the Alps to join the liberators in the East, but gets captured by a Gallic chieftain, handed over and put to death. And so that's the end of him. And so that means that there is now only Octavian and his armies between Rome and the huge army of Antony and Lepidus. And at that point, you would think this is the, this is the action now. This is the civil war. Well, so everyone in Rome is wondering, you know, what's he going to do? Yeah. And the answer comes in late July when a centurion arrives in the Senate House and he demands a consulship for Octavian, who by now is 19 so he's, what, 21 years too young for, yes. for yes, the job? he is. And people in the Senate kind of splutter and say, this is an outrage. And, you know, what authority are you doing this? And the centurion puts his hand on the hilt of his sword and says, if you do not make him consul, my sword will. And so 19th of August, Octavian is formally elected consul. And off he heads to fight Antony and Lepidus. Only he doesn't fight them. He meets up and they come to an agreement. And they arrange a, a triumvirate. This is the second triumvirate. Caesar and Pompey and Crassus had done earlier, but that had been in a form, informal agreement. This one is a formal one, even though they're kind of doing it themselves. And they decide that they'll hold their triumviral powers for five years, that they will exercise um, authority over the whole of the empire, that they can pass um, or annul whatever laws they want without reference to the Senate, without reference to the people, that martial law is extended to uh, Rome itself. And effectively, you know, this after 400 years is the end of freedom as the Romans had always understood it. Um, it's imposing directly a military dictatorship. The sublime and tragic irony that the one act that was supposed to precipitate the end of autocracy or the to avert autocracy and to turn back the clock to the republican tradition that that one act has has hastened it and destroyed the republic because at that point so you still have the liberators don't you they're off in the east we haven't we've yeah. sort of put them to one side in the first half of this podcast but antony lepidus octavian there is no way that, I mean, the Republic is dead, isn't it? The Senate have no troops. So what will they do with these powers and with their armies? Rome is basically defenceless before them. And before their arrival in Rome, again, there are, there are terrible portents. So dogs howl like wolves. Wolves are seen running through the forum. Right. Loud shouts are heard coming from the sky. The clash of weapons, the pounding of unseen hooves. It seems to threaten horror oh my word and so dominic it proves to be and perhaps we should take a break it's always good to end on a cliffhanger tom and we certainly have wolves howling like dogs vice versa 
It's all happening. What will happen next? Find out after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Of his murderers, scarcely any outlived him more than three years or died a natural death. All were condemned and met with a variety of fates. Some died at sea, some in battle, and some using the very daggers with which they had done such terrible violence to Caesar, killed themselves. So, Tom, you're desperate. You've been badgering me about reading that uh, <laughs> quotation. That's from Suetonius, the 12 Caesars. It's your own translation, which is why you wanted me, because you sort of felt, I think, didn't you, that um, there hadn't been enough <laughs> of you in this podcast. I did, yes. You wanted a bit more. So basically... Very Caesar in behaviour. You, you wanted to, do, to to speak yourself, but when you when I'm speaking, you want me just to read out things you've written. <laughs> yes. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So the spirit of Julius this Caesar. This is very Julius Caesar-like behaviour. All right. Now you can speak in your own words. 
tell us what happens. Um, Rome is in this apocalyptic state. The armies of Antony, Lepidus, Octavian, they're all there. The liberators are off in the east and everyone's, well, I've forgotten they're out them. What happens next? Well, the, so the reason I wanted that particular passage to read, the idea that Suetonius is is articulating there, it's the last lines of his biography of Julius Caesar, is that this idea that the triumvirs, Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus, feel that they're embodying the idea that, there is, that they are they are visiting divine vengeance yeah. on the assassins of Caesar, and this is what is legitimating their actions, and so this is what justifies them in putting Decimus Brutus to death. But it's not enough for them just to kill the assassins and to hunt them down. Because what they need, if they're going to go and fight Brutus and Cassius in the East, is money to raise legions, um, even more than they already have. And the obvious source of money are the wealthy senators in Rome who are kind of sitting there waiting to be plucked. And there's an example in this from an early period in history where a, a man called Sulla, the first man to march on Rome, yeah. and he had issued prescription lists, which were kind of white boards put up in the forum. And so how this worked was that you would get a, re- a reward if you cornered someone who was on a prescription list and proved that you killed him by bringing his head to the, the triumvirs. And so this is what happens. And it's absolutely kind of brutal and murderous so you all kinds of terrible stories of of you know condemned men having to kind of hide out in attics or stables that there are kind of shameful stories so there's a story of a woman who was um who <laughs> hated her husband betrayed her betrayed him to bounty hunters and then married her lover the same day oh so that's that's not good behavior no. but then there's equally the many uplifting tales of wives who nobly stand by their husbands um and uh, so there's one in particular who braves a beating from from thugs sent by Lepidus um, to beg for her husband's life. Um, and he, he does actually survive. He gets off and he wrote her this, this kind of moving uh, tribute. Um, they covered you with bruises, he wrote, but never broke your spirit. Oh, so, that's nice. You know, there are kind of inspiring stories that come out of this, but by and large, it's, it's very, very brutal. And the, the triumvirs make enormous amounts of money by wiping out vast swathes of the Roman elite. Yeah. Now, there is one person, obviously, who Antony wants to see dead. And that is Cicero, who has spent the previous year writing escalatingly abusive speeches about him, yeah. kind of accusing him of being drunk, dressing up as a woman. Corrupt, I suppose. Corrupt, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Um, so Antony's very keen to, to have him killed. Octavian, of course, is ostensibly you know, his friend <laughs> and might have been thought to stick up for him. But when, they, when the Triumvirs first met and agreed on the prescriptions, as a signal, as a, as a marker of the way that they were all obliged to dabble their fingers in blood. Um, Each of them was obliged to sacrifice a man whom they might otherwise have felt obliged to save. So Antony um, agrees to the prescription of an uncle, Lepidus, his brother, and Octavian agrees that Cicero should die. And so Cicero heads off. I mean, he could have escaped. He could have escaped, but he's a natural vacillator. He keeps kind of going around in his litter, trying to work out you know, where he should stay. And eventually he gets cornered by a troop of, of, um, of bounty hunters. He leans out from his litter, bears his throat in the way that a gladiator does when he's been um, condemned to death by the crowd and his throat is slit and his head is, is taken to Antony who gives it to Antony's wife, Fulvia, who has all kinds of personal reasons for hating Cicero. And she pulls out his tongue and uh, stabs the tongue with her hairpins. And the head and his hands are then hung up in the forum. And, you know, th- this mutilation of Cicero's tongue 
perfect, you know, it's absolutely perfect symbol of the way in which the great tradition of free speech in Rome has now been silenced. And the hands that wrote the speeches that abused Antony yeah. are now severed and bleeding um, in the forum. So, so Rome is in a, an absolutely terrible state. Meanwhile, what is happening in the East? So that line at the beginning from Suetonius, the idea that all the, all the assassins must be hunted down, this is something that the triumvirs are embodying. But even before they form the, the triumvirate, the idea that Caesar's assassins should be hunted down has been put into action. So um, Decimus Brutus is not the first assassin to be, to be executed. He's actually the third. The first is Trebonius, who is the guy who had held Antony from going into the Senate house when Caesar was being murdered yeah. and who had then been given the province of Asia in the kind of the meeting of the Senate immediately after the assassination. And so he heads off to Asia and he's followed by Dolabella this kind of sinister thuggish figure who has been given Syria. And Dolabella basically surprises Trebonius, takes him prisoner and hands him over to be tortured. And he's tortured very, very horribly for two days. Um, and then his head is chopped off and placed beneath a statue of Caesar. And this kind of serves as a warning to all the assassins, we're out to get you. And this is given legal justification by a law that is passed by um, a guy called Quintus Pedius, who is consul with Octavian in 43. And so he passes the Lex Pedia, which goes back on the amnesty that had been given to the assassins and sentences all of them to death. And the assassins could not have averted this if they had stayed in Rome. So if they'd stayed, was Rome too dangerous for them? I think Rome is too dangerous for them. Yeah. So there's no way that they had... So from that very first failure to secure the city... Everything follows from that. Everything follows from that. And they've made this... They've disappeared. Now, they've gone to the east, presumably, because the east is rich and they think they can raise troops. Is that right? And they do. And they've been, they've been doing it very effectively. So uh, we shouldn't think that, that, you know, that, that brutality and ambition is only on the side of the triumphers. Brutus and Cassius are both show themselves very capable of committing atrocities in the cause of raising money that they can then spend on troops. So Brutus, you know, he destroys an entire city the horror that he visits and encourages the inhabitants of the city to commit mass suicide. Um, there's kind of emblematic horror when a woman is found hanged with a dead child around her neck and a flaming torch in her hand. Um, and this is just before Brutus sees, you know, the, the apparition that, that we began the episode with. Um, Brutus has also put Antony's brother to death. He'd taken him prisoner and put him to death. Um, Cassius, likewise, has been busy extorting money. So the traditional view, which is that you have these incredibly hard-nosed, ruthless people on one side and these sort of naive, you know, bien-pensant kind of dinner party people on the other, is not really accurate at all. No, except I suppose Brutus and Cassius would say that they were extorting money from provincials, whereas the triumvirs were, were, were looting it from their own class. So it doesn't count people. if they're doing it to... You know, Eastern provincials. I mean, obviously it does. It, yeah. it, it's not it's not legal, but it kind of you know it, it matters less, I suppose, right. to a Roman. Yes, that you're you're stiffing the people of Rhodes or Xanthus for money, than than that you're kind of murdering senators. Yeah. Um, but it's um, there's brutality and violence on all sides, and both men end, but both sides end up with vast, vast armies. So Brutus and Cassius end up with twenty legions, which is you know, just under 100,000 men. They've also got large, you know, thousands of cavalry, mounted archers. So, th I mean, this is a huge force. Yeah. And so Antony Octavian in Italy know that they've, you know, they, they need to match this and they managed to raise a kind of 
matching force. They, they also have 20 legions. Antony and Octavian cross the Adriatic. They leave Lepidus behind. They send advanced force across uh, northern Greece into Macedonia, so the the the, 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 the what had once been the kingdom of Alexander. Yeah. Um, and they they try to block the assassins, but um, Brutus and Cassius are able to. They they kind of go around the, the the bottom of a very densely forested mountain and snake past, and then they emerge near the largest town in Macedonia, which is a place called Philippi. And they divide their armies, Brutus commanding one, Cassius another, and they block off the Via Ignatia, which is the great high road that leads from the Adriatic towards towards Asia. Yeah. And basically, they're in a strong position because they have supplies. Cassius's position enables him to uh, control access to the nearest port so they can have food and all kinds of things brought into them. Antony and Octavian much more exposed. Supplies for them are much more difficult. So it's incumbent on them to try and force their position. And just on the commanders, so Octavian is very inexperienced. He's little more than a teenager. Antony obviously is very experienced. On the other side, Brutus is more of a politician, but Cassius is also, I mean, Cassius is, you know, would be, would, would fancy himself against Antony in a, in a fight, presumably. Yes. And so it's Antony who faces Cassius and it's Octavian who faces Brutus. And you're right that Octavian is, is, is not a good commander. What his contribution to the general shebang is on the eve of the battle. He's, he swears an oath that he will build a, a temple to Mars Altor, Mars the Avenger in rome which in due course he will do but but basically that's the limit of his contribution because he then falls sick right um and so he he gets taken from his tent to to, to receive medical treatment um and this isn't obviously <laughs> as 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 inspiring as it could be no. but meanwhile antony is very very kind of alert and so he tries to outflank cassius cassius positions by going through a marsh and try and cut cassius off from the sea and this precipitates the beginning of the whole battle. So Cassius's forces engage with Antony's and Brutus's, even though they don't need to come out of their fortified positions, they do. They attack Octavian's camp and they capture it. Yeah. Um, Octavian, you know, he's already left, but it's a kind of very bloody defeat for Octavian's men. But meanwhile, Antony has defeated Cassius's force and Cassius commits suicide. I mean, that is a colossal blow for the liberators or the assassins depending on how you call them given that brutus is nowhere near as experienced a commander as as cassius is presumably right but still has troops but it's the measure perhaps of his inexperience that um he holds to his position for three weeks but then he comes out to meet them and he seems to have been pressured by his staff right and he loses and he commits suicide as well so the ghost the ghost is a Roman formula, I'm assuming, a literary formula that is a sort of foreshadowing of your doom and your guilt and all that sort of stuff. Well, so, you know, you began it with this kind of vision that Brutus has as they're crossing into Asia. But there is a ghost of Caesar that is seen. Um, it's, again, reported by Suetonius. Someone from Thessaly, kind of region in, in northern Greece, comes to Octavian and says that I have seen Caesar. Yeah. And Caesar predicts that you will win. So Octavian goes and, you know, he's whether that's true or not, I mean... Who, who knows? But this is all kind of part of the idea that this great battle at Philippi, which I'm, I, I'm not an expert on the Napoleonic Wars, and but I would guess it's a battle on that kind of scale. I mean, you know, 200, 250,000 yeah, people numbers. engaged. I mean, these are vast, vast numbers. But, but just on the battle, Tom, can I just ask a yeah. question about the battle? So the way we've told the story, the way that everybody always tells the story of this whole business, going right back to 44 BC and, and the conspiracy against Caesar, we tell it in the knowledge that the assassins will lose. And that so all the emphasis is on the, the cunning and the ruthlessness of Antony and Octavian, the naivety and folly 
of Brutus and Cassius in not making sufficient preparations and, and all these things. But battles with such vast numbers, I mean, they're pretty evenly matched armies and notoriously hard to predict. So had that first battle, for example, gone differently, had Cassius not been killed, wouldn't we have done these two podcasts completely differently? And Or do you think I'm being... Uh, uh, yes, very, I think so. I mean, what it, had the Triumvirs lost the Battle of Philippi? Yeah. I mean, it depends whether they die in battle or not. If they die in battle, then... It's kind of game over, isn't it? Lepidus is, is a, a, an ineffectual politician, as he will show himself to be. Um, and Brutus and Cassius could well have restored liberty at the point of a sword. I mean, but whether they would have been able to do that or not, I don't know. If you know, if Antony had managed to escape from Philippi, the battle would have raged on and probably Rome's empire would have been destroyed in the resulting battle. It's the fact that, um, I mean, you know, we began this series with the example of Cato committing suicide. Yeah. And I think that that is the model that stands before Cassius and Brutus, because of course, Cassius didn't need to commit suicide because Brutus had won. He commits suicide before the news of Brutus's victory reaches him. So he could have lived to fight another day. Yes. So in that sense, there's a kind of great irony that, it, that in fact, the example of Cato is what dooms the Republic. And the sense of something historic and noble passing is there in accounts of how Brutus's body is treated. So there are two rival accounts. In one, Antony hunts out Brutus's body. He covers the body with his cloak, burns it honorably, and sends the ashes back to Sevilla. To, to Brutus's mother. But in the alternative tradition, the body of Brutus is beheaded on Octavian's orders yeah. and he sends it back to Rome to be placed beneath Caesar's statue. And for Octavian, there is no shred of sentimentality about what has been done. I mean, it's not really very much about for Antony, but he at least is old enough to have the sense that something has been lost with what has happened at Philippi. Yeah. And it's the measure of that that when prisoners are led before the triumvirs who kind of you know the noblemen who've been taken captive they salute antony as imperator as the general who has defeated them but they curse octavian octavian is seen as vicious and savage and utterly beyond the pale right um and brutus and cassius their deaths rather like with cato that kind of dignifies them in the memory of of romans who in the the decades and centuries to come lament the end of the republic so there's a a historian writing in the reign of Tiberius who, who commemorates them as the last of the Romans. And they, you know, there are historians right the way up into the present day who, who mourn it. Yeah. Um, so Ronald Syme, the great historian of what he calls the Roman revolution writing in the thirties against the backdrop of, of fascism and show trials in Russia. He says of Philippi, this time the decision was final and irrevocable, the last struggle of the free state, henceforth nothing but a contest of despots over the corpse of liberty. So Octavian, I mean, spoiler, he, he ends up defeating Antony. Yeah. The two of them end up kind of fighting a yet further civil war. Octavian defeats Antony and Cleopatra um, and in due course is given the name Augustus and rules as, as Rome's first emperor. Whether he is a despot ruling over the corpse of liberty is a question that perhaps we can come to when we do Augustus. Yes. But, you know, there's no question that the Republic, as it had been understood for centuries, is gone. And symbolically, that is focused by the, the murder in 30 BC. So that is after Antony has been defeated uh, and, and committed suicide of the very last of the assassins to be hunted down, who's a guy called Cassius Parmensis. So they're hunting them down for 14 years. 
Yeah, so it's, it's rather like the hunting of the people who signed Charles I's death warrant. I, I was just thinking exactly that. It's like the search for the regicides in the 1660s, isn't it? Yeah. Um, extraordinary that it lasts so long. There's a very good book on it by Peter Stoddart, who was editor of the Times, editor of the TLS, called, I think, The Last Assassin, about Cassius Parmensis. It's, it's very good, highly recommended. But it's, you know, it's it, it, it's a kind of terrible story. Uh, I mean, it's it's so brutal and bloody and murderous and so much destruction. But, you know, in due course, when Augustus comes to power, the measure of his success is that, that people are willing to forget. So there's a story that Claudius, who will go on to become the, the emperor, as in I, Claudius, that he wanted to write a history of the civil wars. And Augustus's wife tells him... <laughs> Don't, don't go there. But Augustus, so we're sort of slightly jumping ahead, but um, Octavian becomes Augustus. He becomes the winner, but he has learned from Caesar's example, hasn't he? Because he, he doesn't, I mean, he does take lots of offices, but he doesn't end up murdered because he doesn't, he, he makes um, a great spectacle of his own modesty and his humility and pretends to be the servant of the Senate in a way that perhaps Caesar didn't. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Absolutely fair. Yes. I mean, he very much has Caesar's example in front of him. Yeah. And of course, everyone in the empire, Romans and provincials, have that example too. So they also know not to assassinate him because they think we don't want another massive civil war, presumably. Yeah. But the Republic was dead. You know, the Republic wasn't killed by the assassins of Caesar or by Antony or by Octavian. Surely the Republic was, we know now, with the benefit of hindsight, that the Republic was doomed was finished because of Rome's expansion, its wealth, because it had acquired this empire and because the machinery of Republican government was no longer appropriate to, to govern this great, wealthy, powerful Leviathan. I mean, I think the fact that Pompey doesn't make himself a military dictator suggests that perhaps th- that it's the peculiar qualities of Caesar, his, his ambition and his genius and his lack of sentimentality about the legacy of the Republic that is ultimately what destroys it. Conversely, it's a bit like Europe in 1914. If Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated, it's almost certain that some other spark would have been thrown on the right. on the bonfire. Um, I, I suspect that, that the Republican system of government had simply become too unstable to endure and that at some point, you know, someone was going to do what Caesar ends up doing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the good fortune of, of Rome that Octavian, who we've portrayed as this kind of icy terrorist, and, and that's what he was. I mean, he was a, he was a terrifying figure mm-hmm. um, who clearly from the beginning had as his goal, sole goal, the aim of making himself master of the Roman state, but that he was he was such a supremely gifted statesman. You know, we've said this before, have we not? Probably the single greatest political figure in Western history. I always think, Tom, you're much too hard on Octavian, frankly. I think he's in a really, really difficult position when he gets that inheritance at the age of 18. He's probably he's probably going to die. I mean, that's realistically. Yes. That's the most likely outcome if you're a betting man. And the fact that he doesn't, and then he does, okay, he does become an autocrat. But as autocracies go, it could have been an awful lot worse than it than it was. But if he died at Philippi, he would be remembered as a monster, someone who had betrayed and murdered in cold blood, who had trampled on every tradition of Rome. And it's the fact that he survives 
and an ape ends up as father of the state, yeah. the man who claims to have restored the Republic. It's it's interesting that Octavian is actually such a, although he's much less well-known than Julius Caesar, he's such a magnetic historical personality that we've ended up talking about him. But to turn it back to Caesar, what if Caesar doesn't die in 44 BC? What if he doesn't go, what if he listens to Calpurnia and he, how does history, is this is this a completely fruitless exercise to pursue the counterfactual? I mean, it depends how he does in... In Parthia. In Parthia. I mean, evading Iraq is... Doesn't always work out, does it? But let's assume that it goes better when, than when Crassus did it, that it also goes a bit better than when Antony did it some years later. But it's not a complete, you know, he doesn't conquer Parthia. He inflicts maybe a couple of defeats, uh, suffers a defeat himself, mixed record, but he can portray it as, as a win. And then he comes back. What happens next? Because th- they're still in the same position that they were you know, in 45, 44 BC, aren't they? That he's too powerful, too rich. Is there any way that he can be accommodated in the system? So this is recognized as a problem by contemporaries. And and Cicero records, in the wake of the assassination, he records a friend of his saying, you know, and I paraphrase, because I don't have it exactly to hand, but I paraphrase, he he says, we're screwed. Um, Nothing can be done. If even Caesar, with all his genius, couldn't solve this problem, then what hope have any of us got of of resolving it? So it's possible that the entire crisis would just have grumbled on and the the entire fabric of of Rome's empire would have started to disintegrate. Although doesn't the example of Octavian suggest that it can be resolved, but maybe it takes an incredible descent into bloodshed to make that possible? Yes, I think so. So I think it has a kind of the sheer scale of the bloodshed and the horror is, is so traumatic that it serves as a cauterizing effect. Yeah. And the the fortune of, you know, it's the good fortune of Rome is that they end up with Europe's most able politician yeah, who, who stabilizes the whole situation. And the assassination generally, you know, when people tell that story, it's interesting, isn't it? How generally, maybe Shakespeare is actually slightly different, but by and large, I think people's sympathies tend to be with Caesar rather than the assassins. Do you think I'm wrong? I think there's a slight sense that they're his friends and they've cowered in a cowardly and callous way. They've struck him down in a way that he can't he can't fight back. It's not a fair fight. He's outnumbered, he's betrayed. I think historically it depends on on what your ideological principles are. So if Shakespeare is able to show Caesar's assassination in a way that he couldn't show, for instance, the death of a king. Yes. Because that would be far far too sensitive. But of course people entirely understand that the fascination of the story in an age where, you know, you can't talk about the murder of kings is that it enables you to discuss precisely those kind of issues. Yeah. And so the murder of Caesar is, you know, if you're if you're a French revolutionary, then of course you're all in favour of it. Yes. You know, they're all calling themselves Brutus and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So I think it depends on your politics. I mean, now, yes, I think people, because the issues have become less, I mean, you know, there's no problem with kind of portraying um, the murder of kings or whatever, or indeed presidents. So 2017, I think it was, there was a production of Shakespeare in... Uh, in Central Park in New York, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of regular summer performance of, of Shakespeare. And there was kind of great scandal because Caesar was portrayed as someone with a very long red tie. <laughs> oh, gosh. East European wife, a kind of orange <laughs> orange skin tone. Right. Um, and there was kind of outrage that, you know, effectively this was a portrayal of uh, the assassination of Trump. But actually, why should there be outrage? Because, as you say, often people's sympathies are with Caesar because he's betrayed by his friends. Hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Who are your sympathies with there? Deep down, I know you're trying to evade the question, but deep down, are you team Caesar or are you team Brutus? 
I know that it's going to go disastrously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I suppose a bit like Cicero, I, I kind of, dis- I despair of their, <laughs> their oh. inability to plan ahead. Right. And I do find, I mean, I, Caesar is a very sympathetic, magnetic yeah. figure. Well, I think the interesting thing, so I think what loads it is the fact that Caesar had treated them with great magnanimity. Of course, Caesar is terribly ambitious and he can be very violent and ruthless, but he could so easily have punished all these people who had backed Pompey. And the fact that he didn't, and he was so forgiving, I mean, it's quite unusual, isn't it? In somebody of such military might. But as we said, that's quite an aggressive thing to do, to pardon your enemies as though they're you're the master and they're the slave. I mean, of course, it's better than torturing them to death for two days, yeah. as, as Dolabella did. But it's not quite as, you know, f- forgiveness is more loaded than for us, I think. Well, Tom, I tell you, when our enemies seize power in Britain, I'm, I'm taking the pardon. I have no shame in taking the pardon. But Dominic, we have all been Christianized, so yeah. that's that's why it's different. Okay. Anyway, I think I think we should end it. Actually, we should end it, shouldn't we, with a name check of um, after Etu Brute, what is probably the most famous dramatic line written about Caesar's assassination, which was co-written by the father of my dear friend uh, Jamie Muir, Frank Muir, in Carry On Cleo, where Caesar cries out, "Infamy, infamy! They've all got it, infamy." Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.